Hello, and welcome to Relevate Presents Scholarship, the podcast where we use real research to analyze, scrutinize, and humanize your favorite TV and movie couples. I'm your host, Eric Goodcase. Hello, and welcome to a special super dramatic edition of Relevate Presents Scholarship. That's right, we're talking about Twilight, the entire series, all four books slash five movies. And joining us to talk about them today is Dr. Lance Garman, who is an associate professor at Salisbury University. Dr. Garman, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. All right. So as we start off every time, we're going to give Dr. Garman a chance to talk a little bit about his research and professional interests. So Dr. Garman, if you want to introduce yourself and um, kind of things do you research. Okay. I think of myself as a developmental psychologist, kind of specializing in socio-emotional development. I often talk about the fact that I was doing emerging adulthood before there really was that phrase, back when we called it youth or young adult or something like that. Mm. My graduate training was specifically in the area of moral development, moral reasoning and judgment development. And then toward the end, I was also able to work in some attachment theory and some expertise and development there. So that had been the primary focus until I started my career here at Salisbury and started to have a little bit more control over whatever I wanted to do. And since we're primarily an undergraduate university, I wanted projects that undergraduate students would want to be involved in and that could be done pretty quickly in a semester or two. And I love TV. I love books. I love films. So I moved into pop culture media in quite a few ways. And I'm always able to tie that back into moral development or attachment or some of the other kinds of major transitional phases between adolescence and into adulthood. Over the last few years, I've really started to zero in on an approach that Jeffrey Arnett came up with in about 1995, looking at five different uses that adolescents and young adults use when they consume media, when they choose the movie, the book, the TV show. So I kind of focus around those five uses, like entertainment and identity development and coping mechanisms and things like that. Oh, very cool. So that's going to tie in so perfectly to this podcast. So that's yes, really perfect. Exactly. Yeah, once uh, I found out about your podcast, then yeah, it was a perfect fit. For yeah, really a lot of the really things well. that I was doing already. Excellent. Excellent. So let's get into Twilight a little bit. So um, tell me a little bit about your relationship with Twilight when it first, like, did you read the books when they came out? Did you see the movies? How did you think of it? So, like, what's your kind of like history with the franchise? I believe I was probably a fairly early adopter. They were probably into the second book by the time I had become familiar with it. But in terms of full transparency, this is one of my genres. There's two or three genres that I read a lot of books, watch a lot of TV shows. I would have read this series no matter what, once I found out about it and once I knew it was popular. We also started doing research over a number of years, focusing in on this and a couple of the other big franchises that were popular at the time. So it's always straddled the line between reading it for fun, watching the movies, and also thinking about the scholarship side. What yeah, I typically that's... tell people is, it's not the worst vampire teen book that I read that month. <laughs> 
Very good. And I think that's such a fun thing that we, it's a theme that comes up every time we have this podcast of like watching these things as mm-hmm. like academics and as enjoyment. I think that's kind of a fun balance that we get to strike. And I think that's, I you know, analogous, even if you're not doing research on these kinds of things and don't have that kind of interest, like just the interest of like, what does this media say or say about the world or say about X topic? And then do I enjoy it? And I think it's important that we like, you know, appreciate both. And I think when most of us are academics in the classroom, it's important to understand that this media is impacting the students in our class. I mean, it is shaping their views, their attitudes, and the difference between each generation on what they think is an appropriate relationship or an inappropriate relationship or anything along those lines. Absolutely. And I kind of forgot to introduce Denzel. Denzel's still here. How's it going, Denzel? It's going pretty well. I think uh, at this point, like no introduction needed, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, it, we'll know who you are. yeah. Listeners probably like, well, I'm sure we hear his voice at some time, so <laughs> just be a surprise. <laughs> so yeah, so about so you know four four minutes, five minutes into the podcast, here I am, surprise. There you go. So you're not boycotting <laughs> the vampire show. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so Denzel, what's your relationship with Twilight? I'll talk about mine after you're done, but um, what's your relationship with it? Oh, wow. Ah, my relationship with Twilight. Um, I, so I haven't read any of the books. I started watching it in high school and watched all of the, the films. So it's been a long time since I've watched it. Uh, so short story, I remember the first time I watched it, we were doing like some sort of honors party at our school. And, you know, the people who got good grades were invited to the auditorium. And they showed the first Twilight film. And so that was kind of my introduction to Twilight after being resistant for so long. And, you know, you hear people <laughs> talk about, you know, oh, that sounds silly, but it's, you know, it's actually a, a pretty good series and I actually enjoyed it. So, yeah, I was going to ask if you liked it or not. Yeah, it was, it was good. Yeah. Oh, I guess it and is did good. You end up watching, have you seen all the movies all the way to the end? Or? Yep. 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 I watched them all. Very nice. So thank you. Uh, High school honor society, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, and I actually, um, when I remember the first time I had heard of Twilight, I was thinking about this because we're going to do this podcast, and I was in high school, and I don't remember if it was like sophomore or junior year or whatever. It was before the movies came out, but there was a girl who came in (laughs) to school with like a shirt that had something about Edward Cullen on it. And usually like, so I was very socially awkward, through middle school and high school. So like the way that I could bond with people is knowing about pop culture. Through, I couldn't have like a real conversation with you, but I could be like, Oh, you like this? I know. I've heard of that. Through middle school and so high that was school how I and, and, and still currently. That you yes, are awkward. Well, <laughs> people don't have to know that. Oops. That's actually <laughs> returning back to that theory that I follow a lot. There's the five different uses. One is cultural identification. You don't want to be left out. So when everybody's saying that they're team Edward or team Jacob, what the hell does that mean? You want to be able to at least understand the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So so I FOMO. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to figure out what this shirt was about. And I don't think I asked her, I think someone else asked her. I'm kind of glad because she got kind of like, what, you didn't hear about this. So (laughs) she went into this like whole diatribe, maybe not a whole diatribe. Maybe I'm exaggerating for the point, but like she went into this whole thing about how great, Edward was and how great this book was. And I had never heard of it. And it's, it was very rare for me to have like never heard of something like that. So I was very interested. And then it got really big shortly after that. And uh, I had watched the second movie in high school, 
without any context from the first and don't remember very much at all. And then I watched um, the first movie and I read a little bit and kind of caught up for this podcast. So um, I kind of went in with that, like, um, you know, when I was a teenager, I was like, I'm not going to watch that. Like, that's, that's silly. That's not for me. Um, but it was, yeah, it was interesting. And it was like watching the movie. It was, um, I expected it to be all about kind of the romance part of it, but there was some like really interesting, I like the darkness of the cinematography and like the, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just, I actually kind of enjoyed it more than I thought I would. And I imagine that when the books were created, we were not the intended audience. Um, but here we are <laughs> three people, the three males talking. About yeah. It. Who have kind of enjoyed it over the course of different parts of our lives. So you never, you never know, I guess. You guys uh, have answered one of the questions I was kind of curious about, whether it was books yeah. versus films, because I know I'm an oddball in that, that I enjoy the books. I almost always read a book before the film comes out so I can compare them and getting ready for this comp, this uh, podcast, I went ahead and did my homework and I only reread the first book, but I realized I've read the books three or four times since they've come out. And this is only the second time I've ever seen the films. I watched them when they first came out, but then I watched them again for this. So my foundation, my perspective is more book-based than it is film-based. And that's not true for most of the world. Most of the world watches the films. Yeah, definitely. And I think I, yeah, I, I know that I've heard really good things about the books and I've heard a lot of like, you know, every every series has purists, right? Like, oh, the movies don't do the books justice. And I've heard a lot of that. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear, and especially if there are some differences, if you want to bring that in, because Denzel and I might not even know those exist. So There are a few that I was thinking we might talk about as we go along today, yeah. Oh, nice, perfect. So um, let's get into it. So I thought a good place to start was with our protagonist, Bella, and just kind of like how we're introduced to her and what we learn about her and kind of her life experience at the time. So we kind of opens up with her moving with her dad and to this new place. Well, not completely new. She had visited there before, but like this is her first time she's ever kind of like hunkering down there. And um, you get a little bit of information about her relationship with her dad and her relationship with her peers, and you learn a little bit about her personality. So what were your first kind of impressions reading the book or watching the movie and just kind of like your first impressions of Bella. This is one of those where I did want to make a distinction between the books and the films. Cause I do think she's much more of a sympathetic character in the book. There's more of an inner monologue. There's more of a self-sacrificing. She's taken care of her mother during most of their relationship. And this is the next way she can do it. She does not want to, move away from the sunshine to go to a place that's all rain. She loves her dad, but she hates the town he lives in. Mm -hmm. So for her, she is sacrificing what she likes for the betterment of a family member. And I think that works well to set her up as a sympathetic character. And I'm not sure you get that from the films. I think she may come across a little bit more petulant and snotty when she shows up in the film. Yeah, I think my impression was that she was kind of had that take care of mom thing. But yep. the the part about moving away almost seemed like it was more about mom and her new boyfriend leaving than it was about her doing something for um, for her mom. So that's kind of interesting that that difference there. I didn't think about that. I didn't know about that. 
in the book, it's extremely explicit that mom didn't want her to do it. Mom was going to get married, but not be with her husband because he's on a traveling baseball team. Mm -hmm. But Bella is the one that forces her mom to move in with her husband. So, and Bella, the only way that works is if Bella moves in with her dad across the country. I also like that it was like a positive relationship with her stepdad slash um, yeah. mom's boyfriend. I thought that was positive too, because I feel like you get so much of the negative step relationship. So that was interesting. To yeah. see. And eventually I think you get that toward the end of the series when dad develops a relationship too, that yeah. she's very supportive of that future romantic relationship for him. Absolutely. Yeah. So I also was very, and I'm interested to see if this was reflected in the books the thing that struck me the most about Bella, especially early on, was like this kind of like closed offish personality, but like people being so drawn to her. Yeah. So like her first day of school in the movie, like everyone wants to be her best friend, but she doesn't seem all that like outgoing or like warm in any way. And I it was just kind of an interesting magnetism that she has that didn't seem like that was easily explained. I don't know if you had any reactions or thoughts about that as well. I think it's an interesting discussion when you think about identity development and how as you go through adolescence, the person you think you are in early adolescence is not the same person you are in late adolescence. So I think she moves in with her dad still with this earlier identity of them. As far as I know, we never mention a single friend, a single relationship, a single contact back in her old life. I'm sure she had friends, but they're never mentioned. Mm -hmm. And she's completely shocked that people at this new school care, that guys want to ask her out is completely foreign to her, that females want to be friends with her, surprises her time and time again. So yeah, that idea of being closed off, she lived in her own world. She wasn't connected to people in her own generation. She always talks about being more connected to older, maybe not a hundred years older, but older people in her life. Yeah, I just thought that was such an interesting thing because it's very different than a lot of other characters you see on TV. Well, usually the popular characters have some like very relatable kind of like archetype that they ascribe to that yeah. you can see that they fit this popular villain. Bella definitely does not. Um, but she but seems to hang out with the popular group from day one. I mean, yeah, right away. Or at least they think they're the popular group. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. There could be another popular group. Who knows? But I also, I think the school's kind of small. So maybe there's only one group in general. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, was, I thought that was like a very interesting, like, introduction and very interesting character. It was new. It was something that I hadn't really seen before. And I liked that. And that's she fun. seemed a little closed off with her father also, but it seemed like they both wanted to be closer, but weren't sure how to do it. And I don't know if you got the same impression, but that's kind of the impression I was getting from them. So this is going to be really fun as I keep thinking book impression and then try to translate (laughs) it into the film. Because in the book, it's so clear she loves that, that he doesn't hover around her when she's unpacking her room on the first day, that they can comfortably sit in silence in the kitchen and eat, and neither one of them feels like they need to talk that that personality trait is completely similar in both the father and the daughter, and yeah. it makes them perfect roommates. Yeah, I you, I kind of got that sense from the uh, from the movie, but yeah, it was definitely like a um, a different vibe. It almost wasn't sure if I and I didn't know. I see the enjoyment part of it. I think, and I think you're right. I think in the movie it comes across as wanting something more that she's not getting. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, so I think. 
Bella is a really interesting character and it really sets up in an interesting way, especially like that first like meeting with Edward where it's the first time someone's not like at that school, at least that someone's not like outwardly trying to like engage with her. And there's something yeah. about that that she really attracts to. And he has a very aversive response. We find Absolutely. out why later, but like definitely has a very aversive response. I thought that was interesting. So what is your kind of like thoughts and feelings about like when we first see them interact? So Edward and Bella's like their first interactions from that weird kind of like aversive reaction he has to the conversations they kind of start after that. That maybe this is retrospective looking back, but it's the most intense emotional reaction she has with anybody at the new school. I mean, it's For not sure. entirely positive but they both react to each other very strongly when she sees him in the cafeteria, when they sit beside each other, when he tries to drop the class so he doesn't have to ever be around her again. Right. Yeah. They just really have an intense emotional reaction of some kind. And then later it develops into all different kinds of things, but it's just intense from the very, very first moment. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but that reaction for Edward is definitely a very physiological reaction. And yeah, I imagine that is symbolic of something. I don't, I, I don't know, but um, yeah, it's definitely a, a interesting uh, comparison. So let's get into attachment a little bit with this too, because I know attachment is something that you study and it's a big part of um, some of the things that you've done. And I think it's really interesting to talk about the attachment of these characters. And before we get into that, could you give a quick, um, Reader's Digest rundown of attachment theory, because um, I think for the most part, if we are aware of it, we're aware of it like with children, child, parent, but there's also kind of like the romantic uh, attachment. So if you wouldn't mind giving a quick little rundown for the audience in terms of like what that looks like. There's a couple of really good review articles that I think draw great distinction between those schools of thought, because I know it gets confused. And when I work with collaborators on some of this. Sometimes we really have a problem translating the childhood version to the adult version. But mm -hmm. the original version with Ainsworth and others would be that relationship is the first relationship you ever have. You determine what all future relationships are going to be like based on this initial reaction. And most of parents. us have, yep, yep. And almost always your mother, because that's the primary caregiver, but you're right. It's parents occasionally with others in your life in very unusual dynamics, but mm -hmm. normally the parent. And most of us develop secure. We develop a level of trust. We expect them to show up when they're going to and all of that. Mm -hmm. Some are avoidant because they don't have the connection. They don't have the support they need and they become more self-sufficient. They kind of have to entertain themselves. And then some become more anxious because now they never are separated from their parents. They always are connected. They can't trust themselves to make decisions because mom or dad's always there to do it for them. And that's a really easy way to talk about three different groups. But when we get into adult measures of attachment and ways of thinking about it into adulthood, instead of putting in one of three groups, we talk about the level or the intensity of your anxious attachment mm -hmm. and your level and intensity of avoidant. And if you're really low on both anxious and avoidant, then you're secure. But everybody's going to have some anxiety in their attachment. Somebody, everybody's going to have some avoidance. So we kind of look for those people that have much, much more anxious attachment or much, much more avoidant attachment and compare them to the securely with low scores on both. 
Yeah. And one of the ways I think about it too, is like, you, you're always going to experience some level of something with a partner, like uh, anxiety or uh, yeah. feelings that maybe something's not going right. And it's kind of like how you react to those things too. Are you able to kind of like self soothe yourself and kind of work towards connecting with the other person? Or does it kind of make you spiral into other behaviors that might be more exactly. uh, uh, problematic? So like withdrawing or shutting down on the avoidance side and kind of like conflict or inducing negative emotions on the anxious side. Because if you were expecting all relationships to be like that one first relationship, you would assume an avoidant that they're going to leave or they never really cared about you anyway, something like that. Or with the anxious, you expect them to be connected to you, clingy, part of every moment of your life. So if that doesn't happen, it's confusing one way or the other. Right. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So thinking about Bella and Edward... Um, tell me a little bit about what you think in terms of like their attachment and um, maybe maybe before each other and then maybe with each other or however you want to talk about it. We were looking at this a lot from a research perspective at the beginning. So we went in and picked a um, franchise that we thought represented anxious attachment. And this was before all the books had been written or even the first film had gone into production. So it kind of changed over time. But we assumed that their adult romantic relationship was anxious, that they were always connected, couldn't live without each other. There's so many creepy lines about him watching her sleep and just <laughs> hanging out in her room when she doesn't even know he's there. Yeah. And for me, that connects back to Bella's relationship with her mom, yep. that that would have been an anxious, they were best friends. She was almost her mom's caretaker or decision maker in that family. So that that would be what she would expect later on. Edward, in terms of his background and his foundation, I'm not sure I truly get that from a purely human level of attachment theory. I think this may be where we start throwing in some supernatural vampire <laughs> aspects of right. a super soulmate that you meet in life one way or the other. But Yeah, that's a really good point, too. Like, there's a supernatural element to this, and... You know, the watching her sleep while extremely creepy, and I'm not saying it's not creepy, but like he doesn't sleep at all. And like maybe it's more normal in that culture. Who knows? I don't know enough about vampire culture, but like yes. it might not be like as creepy to him as it might come off to us. And that might change how we view the attachment um, in that particular case. But they certainly are like very like attached and kind of like very I mean, some of it's circumstantial in terms of their drama. Yeah. Um, you know, like a evil vampire trying to kill you is, you know, yes. it adds some drama to the relationship. It just, it will. Um, that's that's your takeaway today, folks. If a yeah. vampire is trying to kill you, it might cause some drama in your relationship. Write that uh, down before we go yeah, any write further. That down. <laughs> Get out your notebooks. Um, and But there is some kind of like level of like, almost desperation especially in some of the um interactions and i know in the um the beginning of the second book with the uh reaction to um like edward like leaving and there being like this really long depression that bella's experiencing and i think i don't know if we know what edward's reaction was but i imagine it was also pretty intense just like this intense kind of like overwhelming feeling that kind of we're going through and wanting to be next to the person all the time and that kind of a thing that is one of the themes that I keep coming back to and thinking about a lot, that mm -hmm. there's a mature, responsible way most teenagers handle 
a breakup or somebody not being interested. And then there's the way all the main characters in this. I mean, there were all these guys that wanted to date Bella and mm-hmm. she shot them all down because she was falling in love with somebody else. And in every case, they went on to somebody else, like high schoolers do. Right. You move yeah. on, you develop a crush on somebody else, and it's a normal. We've got Bella gets dumped by Edward, so she doesn't leave her chair for months on end, and then starts, as I know we'll talk about a little bit later, some of these risky behaviors to feel alive. When mm-hmm. Edward thinks that she's dead, he decides to commit suicide. At some point, this will add lots of time to the podcast, but there's the other <laughs> set of vampires that kind of come in. One of them tries to kill her, and when he doesn't survive, then his soulmate spends two books trying to kill the entire colon vampire family in revenge, mm. and somebody else, her vampire boyfriend, dies, so she wants to destroy anybody that hurt him. So you either try to take your own life if your true love disappears, or you try to have ultimate revenge on everybody else, mm-hmm. there's no small reaction from the yeah. main character. It's very intense for the uh, vampire love. Yes. Yeah. And the werewolf love when we get there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and what's funny too is, um, so when I first watched, and I, I we kind of mentioned this in, in an email between the two of us, but I wanted to kind of get into this too. I got the impression just from before they started dating that they seemed like they had a, some avoidant tendencies, um, kind of more closed off, didn't want to like get close to each other, especially um, Edward and his ability to like read minds, but he can't read her mind. Yep. Like it was like, there was this kind of like weird, that was like something that like pushed him towards her and just kind of, he had kind of like, I don't want to get close to you because I'm afraid I might hurt you kind of a thing. And he, he likes to, he does a lot of kind of pushing away sometimes. Um, So a good example would be the breakup. He gets scared. So he pushes away. And um, Bella, I think gave me the impression that she might have been avoidant before they started dating, but they're when they're together, it's so intense that it definitely has more of that kind of like anxious, like can't be, apart kind of like maybe the quote unquote clingy things that we might think of in their relationship. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, uh, whether you kind of disagree with that or whether you thought there was a kind of a, um, any comments you have about kind of like this juxtaposition, I guess, of kind of how different things are sometimes. No disagreement at all. In fact, I think you're helping me realize how much I overly focused on their romantic relationship and then jump back to Bella and her mom as maybe being anxious. But mm-hmm. you're right. I think Bella's completely avoidant with her dad, completely yeah. avoidant with all the friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, as we follow through, she ignores them. She dumps them. I mean, she doesn't show up for things. She abandons them when they go out. And there's never really any guilt. It's just we p- made plans and then I decided not to do it and you just have to deal with it. So she doesn't make that kind of close connection with the friends. Mm-hmm. So there really wouldn't be a true theoretical foundation in attachment theory for why she would do that with friends and do completely different with Edward. It doesn't really fit what most people would do in those relationships. Yeah. And I think while attachment definitely has a framework that kind of is applicable to lots of different situations, it can be relationship dependent in some cases, but this is pretty extreme, I think. Yes. Um, This isn't, I, I don't think this would be like a typical situation you'd see, but I think it is meant to speak to, I think, the intention, and this is just a guess, um, is that when Stephanie Meyer wrote this, she was like, I want this 
relationship to seem that much special, more special. Yeah. Like yeah. she is kind of closed off. He's so closed off, but together it's just so intense. Because he's the oddball out in his family. Everybody right. else is paired up. And he has spent how many decades being alone, hearing everybody's thoughts, but not actually having a partner in any way during that mm -hmm. time. So, yeah, he does push people away. He doesn't connect at all until this one magical supernatural relationship comes along that apparently he's been waiting 100 years for. <laughs> yeah, it, and it's crazy to think about. Like, he really is the... Um... How many wheels? Seventh wheel in his family? Yeah. There's the yeah. Two um, couples that are his, his parents, quote unquote, and then his brothers and sisters. Yep. So he's like yep. the seventh wheel. That would be very uh, different kind of dynamic to like live in and kind of like, and they move around a lot because they have to, so they kind of like stay incognito and it's and definitely like, going to be difficult in some is... way well emphasized in the films, but mm -hmm. at least one of the sisters, I mean, when... Father Colin was saving people's life by turning them into vampires. At least one of them he thought would be Edward Solman, would be his partner. Oh, really? I didn't and then that. after she turned, no, they, they were brother sister. They had no romantic feelings at all. So she went out and found another male vampire to, to hang out with. Gotcha. Which one was but it? I'm pretty sure it was, it was an Alice. Okay. I Rosalind? have my list of names here because I didn't actually remember them. <laughs> Rosalie. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. Interesting. That is interesting. Um, any other thoughts you have on terms of like their attachment styles or kind of the way they kind of relate to each other in terms of like how intense that relationship was? If you, I think if you kind of follow through the pure attachment theory and assume that Edward's parents are, as I check my list again, uh, Carlisle and Esme. Mm -hmm. They seem to have a secure attachment. I mean, the yeah. mother and father figure in this vampire family seems to be very securely attached and provide a good foundation for trusting and loving and all the things you would want. Mm. So, again, it doesn't seem to perfectly make sense that Edward would have this overly obsessive relationship with somebody when he does finally fall in love. And I think the theme we're going to have to come back to again and again is that's the magic X factor of the supernatural. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. what actually draws a lot of people to the saga, I think, is that there is this idea of an ultimate soulmate. That yeah. when you find that one perfect connection, because his brothers and sisters found it, his parents found it, everybody's going to eventually find that one perfect person for them. And that's a very romantic Hollywood idea that's out there. So I think another interesting thing, um, this relates to something you talked about earlier in terms of the research you've done, um, is how seeing a relationship that's this intense and this kind of like um, strong feelings might, like why someone might take an interest in watching this or why someone might really be into it. So tell me a little bit about like what maybe influences it could have on people or why people might be seeking it out or like how does kind of the media um, in this particular case influence and kind of back and forth with the viewer? That was probably the approach we were taking with the research we wanted to see who really likes i mean that obsessive like the one you were talking about who was wearing the t-shirt and so offended that nobody else knew who edward was i also wonder if that t-shirt was one of those real vampires glow because that was a big controversy when this came out as well but <laughs> we wanted to we often refer to some as hardcore resistors those that have never 
no matter how popular a series is or franchises are going to resist it. Mm-hmm. Those that kind of have the typical moderate watch the movies once or twice. And then those people that will read every book multiple times and see every film multiple times. We kind of wanted to know what are they getting out of it? What are they mm-hmm. searching for? And to some extent, we really did go into it assuming they were almost sarcastic about it, that they weren't really truly thinking this was a realistic way of looking at it. Most people, regardless of the franchise, regardless of the kind of entertainment, it's inter- they're doing it for entertainment. They're doing it for the sensation seeking, like you said, some of the good battles and the different ways they look at it. So we kind of narrow in on those that are doing it for identity formation or coping mechanisms. And in doing that, we found that there was a strong group, a subset, no more than 20% or so, that were using these books and films as a template for the kind of relationship they wanted in real life. And we would ask that question in that way, what kind of influence do you think it had on you? And many people said, no influence. It's just a fictional vampire thing. And others would say, it's giving me a true representation of what I want. I should wait for somebody that has the kind of intense love that Bella and Edward have before I ever truly fall in love. And some kind of went the other way and said, that's the love I want, but I'll never be able to get the kind of love that exists in this TV show. So I guess- Was that in like a realist way or was that in kind of like a sad way, I guess? We we were surprised by the finding. So we're a little bit unsure. We thought people would look at it and say, oh, it's completely unrealistic. Mm-hmm. It's just vampires. And what we found is what they were really saying is it's unrealistic because I'm not a good enough person to ever have the kind of love that Bella found. And that's what I would like, but I'm never going to get it. Or other people said, I'm going to get it someday. I just have to wait long enough for my soulmate to come along. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of criticisms out there about how unrealistic, maybe even emotionally abusive some of the relationship could be with the hanging out in her bedroom while she sleeps. And that kind of became some of the concern that if they do find themselves drawn to this kind of fiction on a regular basis, that they are setting themselves up for disappointment, that in the real world, you're not going to find typically that kind of obsessive, all-consuming romantic relationship. And if that's the only thing you think is true love, then it may hurt your ability to have a truly satisfying relationship in your real life. Yeah. I think that's that a really well beyond my data, by the way, that's just gotcha. kind of fun theorizing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's important to bring up too. And that made me think about like the Harley Quinn Joker yep. relationship, which is very idealized, but shows the dark side of that obsession. Right. So the idea of being Harley Quinn is so obsessed with Joker. Like that's something that people idealize in a way, but then you see the dark side of that. Um, in terms of how he treats her and things like that. And not just in the Suicide Squad movie, but in like, you know, through comics and uh, 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 cartoons. I couldn't think of the word cartoon. Uh, Cartoon and stuff like that. She gave up a whole life and career after meeting him, right? She was a successful, I don't know the storyline as well, but I know she was a successful adult before this happened. Yeah, she was his psychiatrist, so. Ah, Or psychologist, yeah. So that was kind of like the fun uh, twist they took with it. So when she was originally created, that wasn't the case. They retconned that kind of storyline in. Um, but, uh, yeah, so she had this kind of like life and became so obsessed and so, um, 
into him that she threw everything kind of away and now is in a relationship that's pretty uh, abusive. And that's certainly kind of the dark side of this kind of like obsessive relationship potential. And And in her mind, it's not dark. It's perfect. She's doing what she really wants. But from the outside, it does not look healthy. Yeah. And I think you brought up an interesting point with those results too of like, you know, we have, we think about like the person that is looking for that, but is, has unreal expectations and isn't going to find it. And maybe that puts them in bad relationships or maybe that makes them act in ways they, maybe they shouldn't in relationships or harmful ways in relationships. But I didn't think about the ones who it almost like hurt their self, like it, it kind of like, maybe it doesn't hurt their self-esteem more, but it, it pulls out this like negative self-esteem in terms of like, I'll never get anything like this. And that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because yes, exactly. that doesn't exist. So and I'm going to drive everybody away that maybe could have been a very healthy, satisfying relationship. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. I never um, thought about that end of it. I always think about the other end of it. It's like someone who is like looking at for this idealistic mm-hmm. and kind of the hopeless romantic type. I didn't think yes. about the hopeless romantic that doesn't think it, like truly hopeless romantic. And I have a tendency to always think in terms of media representations. And I assume that has a pretty powerful influence, but I'm sure for other adolescents and young adults, it's their own parents' relationship, or maybe they sure. see their grandparents selling, celebrating a 50th wedding anniversary. And they see that as an unattainable kind of relationship goal. For sure. Yeah. And I think um, when we talk about influence of media. I think it's really important to talk about, you know, I think when people hear this, sometimes they think, all media has this huge influence and it gets really out of control, um, including comments about video games and violence and like um, uh, there's so many examples and that's the only one I can come up with. Uh, well, now we can talk about vaping. Yeah. I mean, cigarette smoking and vaping and all the celebrities that were marketing the vaping. I haven't seen their commercials in the last couple of weeks, but there used to be a lot of celebrities promoting them. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that that's not kind of the case. For some people, it might have certain pieces of media might have a large influence, but for a, I would say a majority, that's not the case, right? You know, if you were to, and if you were to ask an individual person, they would probably be like, no, that's not like affecting me in that way. I wasn't doing that because of this. I wasn't in a relationship because I watched Twilight. I wasn't violent because I play this video game. Um, But it certainly has a influence that happens maybe, I don't want to say like beyond our awareness, but it has like small influences that can shape us over time. Yeah. And that's kind of like the influence that we're talking about, not this like direct cause and effect of like watching something and feeling a certain way afterwards. And I think there are two different ways to approach it from the research perspective. One is to kind of ask them straight out, which we do some of, do you think you are watching this because it's helping you cope with something in your own life or because you're using it as a way to develop your own identity? And we get some results because that's your conscious awareness or your level of self-awareness that you're talking about. And then on the other side, we can just say, okay, we've got this other personality characteristic that could be unconsciously motivating you. And we did find those that are, have higher anxiety attachment, anxious attachment scores, were the ones most likely to have read the book. We we pegged out at six times for each book. So there's four books, five films, and they had read every book at least six times and seen every film at least six times. Wow. And they was those were the ones most likely to have the higher anxious attachment. So that's that 
influences that they may not be aware of, but seems right. to be connecting them in some form. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I do want to, I feel like it's really easy to focus on the unrealistic parts of the relationship. Let's get into maybe some of the realistic or positive things about the relationship. So what positives do you see between Edward and Bella when you kind of view their relationship? It does seem like they work very hard on communication. Um, yeah. Once again, book versus film. There's a lot of dialogue between these two as they continue to worry about the feeling of the others. And I'm going to leave you now because it's the best thing for you. No, no, I'm going to stay with you because it's the best. So there really is an attempt to communicate and try to do what's best for the other person. And there's a lot of attention to how this relationship we're in and the marriage decisions we're going to make could affect other family members or other people. So we talk about that obsessive pair that they form, but they do still seem to be aware that other people are going to be impacted by every decision that they make. Yeah. And I think the communication is a great point. Cause that was the big, uh, the difference that I knew existed between the books and the movies from everyone that had told me is just the difference in dialogue that there wasn't a lot of dialogue in the movie and yep. it didn't seem to be quite a lot when I watched it. So, um, it was good to have that feedback from other people that you know, yeah. there was a lot of like communication in the books. And I think it's a really interesting point about them, like thinking about other people too, because I think the, um, maybe the stereotype and I, I'm not sure if this is research backed or not, but I think the stereotype would be, you know, when people are so intense in that relationship, they kind of like block everything else out and nothing else matters. Yeah. And they'll cut off whatever. Um, but they are able to kind of like, have their relationship, but in the context of their world. Right. And I can't not remember any of the references on this, but I know people have done research on, especially college students, mm -hmm. whose best friend gets in a relationship and leaves them behind. And how jealous they feel that you're spending all the time with your new romantic partner, and I don't have that time, that chunk of your life anymore, that you've tossed me aside for this romantic relationship instead. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's such a college thing too i think yes in high school too but like that's like that is giving me memories of like people in college reacting that way to um friends and or telling me about yep. their friend or seeing it yeah it's very funny um also and this isn't like necessarily a positive or negative but it was definitely something that like caught my attention in terms of like um relating it to research but like you know the amount of danger that they're in all the time yeah is uh can add to that intensity and like there is yeah. a very famous study a social psych study about like oh gosh i'm gonna I, I might butcher this but basically they were kind of like on this like lead tour and they had to go across this bridge and in the control group nothing was nothing was wrong the people that like, crossed the bridge everything was fine and in the second in the experimental group there was something that was kind of dangerous about the bridge and you can fill in the blanks if i'm messing this up either of you this if you're familiar with it. anyway um and the ones who were in the experimental group where it was more dangerous were more likely to report being attracted to their, mm. I think the tour guide or the whoever was the um, experimenter or helper or whatever. And there is this kind of like connection between attraction and kind of the danger. And I don't know if that's just kind of like because you have these, um, you have that response in your body that's very similar to when you're have feelings for someone. So like when you have attraction, you might have heart racing and 
Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard to think. And you might also experience that in danger or stressful situations, right? Um, so like there might be like a physiological connection or, or something like that, but there definitely is this kind of connection between danger and attraction. I wonder if that played a role with um, Bella and Edward too, because there's so much like, very early on, even before the vampire is out to kill her, there's a sense of like danger in the relationship. And he saves her from a group of men somewhere. And, um, there's a a lot lot of of the revulsion that we've talked about that he just hates her at the beginning. Mm -hmm. We find out that it's really because he hates the fact that he wants to kill her, that he's never been more tempted by a human in his life. Because, oh, we haven't mentioned that these are vegetarian vampires that don't kill the other human beings. Right. So if he were to violate that moral code because he's more attracted to her than anybody else ever, that would make him feel bad. So in his mind, she's in danger from the moment they interact with each other the first time. So, yeah, I mean, the whole relationship is based on danger. Yeah. And that adds, and I think um, anecdotally, we can talk about that person who just like needs maybe excitement in a relationship or needs that. Um, I don't know if either of you ever watched Scrubs, but there is a, um, a character that JD dates in like season one or two, like very early on, that just like needed drama all the time to stay interested. And that kind of like, um, I think fits this kind of like maybe idea we have in our head about this kind of person in this relationship kind of like you really see that when both people are really kind of like in this very dramatic situation and how that kind of like intensifies feelings potentially. And I believe that's a really, really common trope in romance. I mean, yeah, for sure. I'm a big fan of the Hallmark Christmas movie. I mean, all things like that. There's always some kind of danger. You're going to lose a farm. The, right. <laughs> the parents aren't going to get along. I mean, all rom-coms are based on the idea that there's an obstacle to overcome and you have to, Mm-hmm. join together to achieve this goal to defeat this vampire whatever it is yeah and you just don't see the movies where they just kind of fall in love and their life is kind of boring from that moment on yeah, because right no one's going to watch that movie no one watch that movie yeah <laughs> the the more drama the better when it comes to movies for sure because yeah if, no one wants to watch that movie like it would be a very sweet movie i'm sure yes. and, if got the right, and i'm sure if there's got a the right lot of very successful independent films that do exactly that that i've yeah. never seen yeah definitely and also, side note, this is nothing to do with anything, but this is something that I've noticed in rom-coms recently, when they like have something happen, but it can't be either of their fault. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Where it's like they have to make the characters still good people, but something has to go wrong, and it's usually something really dumb. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Just now, something I've this can be a generational response that yeah. that's been around forever. I mean, the cliche yeah. about the sitcom uh, Three's Company is there was a misunderstanding between two of the main characters and it led to all this drama. I mean, that's, yeah, but it's such a big part of any romantic comedy that they have to overcome something, but it can't be because one of them's a bad person because right. you root for them to get together at the end. Yeah. So it can't be their fault. It has to be outside forces that got in the way. Exactly. Yeah. Or this misunderstanding that seems like it should be so small, but it turns into this big thing. Yep. <laughs> anyway. So we started to talk about Edward's reaction to Bella um, being so strong. And throughout the entire first kind of uh, book slash movie, um, he talks about like how tempted he is and how he really doesn't want to go through with this temptation by in terms of like turning her into a vampire. But it's just such a strong physiological reaction. Um, And I feel like it's impossible to talk about this and not talk about like, the symbolism for that to like 
that you know and i've had this argued that it's not this but i it's very it seems to be very clear that that's symbolic for sex okay um i can't see it any other way other than that and i don't know i've had people argue it against me um but i don't know if that um what your thoughts are in terms of like viewing it as maybe sex or just kind of viewing it as vampirism or whatever, but in terms of like how they negotiate that between the two of them. One of the first things when I heard you say that or bring that up is the old adage that an orgasm is a little death. The the whole idea of sex is based on the idea that it is a complete retransformation. It is a ending of something. It is a supposed to be an intensely dramatic moment. But yeah, I mean, there's certainly something about the fear of death, the risk of death that comes back in again and again. And I'm sure you're thinking a lot in the second book and film where Edward has left her because he knows he's bad for her and she wants him back. And she's realized when she puts her life in danger, she sees him, an image of him telling her to be careful. So the only way she can really, truly still be close to him when he's not around anymore is to risk her life over and over and over again. So for them, death and sex and the romantic part of it all comes together. I don't know if you remember that the whole series starts with, before we really know who any of these characters are, there's a little introduction about death and how important it is to die in the right way. And that you have to sacrifice, uh, that if you can sacrifice yourself and die for somebody you love, then your life has been worthwhile. So the idea of death and death with romance and sex is there from the very first paragraph in the book or the very first scene in the film. Yeah, I, I forgot about that scene and that really fits in really well. Um, how do you feel about how they kind of negotiate? So again, if we view it just as very literal him biting her and turning her to a vampire or if yeah. we take the metaphor of like um, sex, um, how do you feel about how they communicated about it and how they kind of worked through that between the two of them? I think it was fairly realistic at times mm-hmm. and frustrating as hell to watch <laughs> or to read over and over again because they would just keep returning to it. For him, yeah. it was a sin. So you would not have sex until after we're married. For mm-hmm. her, she would like to engage her. I mean, that role reversal is kind of interesting. The idea that she's much more of the sexual aggressor, but that they can be romantic, they can be sexually attracted, but they can't actually have sex until after they're married is just a theme they come back to again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of becomes sex before marriage or not, sex before she becomes a vampire or not, and some of the risks that are associated with sexual interactions of one kind or another and the risk of her death if they have sex when he's too strong for them to be able to do it appropriately. So I think they continue to pull those two ideas together again and again and wrap it up in a sense of morality that I know is very important to the author, Stephanie Meyer, that idea of saving yourself for marriage was something she wanted to emphasize. Or I shouldn't say I know that for sure. I haven't spoken with a woman, but I've certainly heard enough that that was an intentional part of the story for her. Definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I have my own kind of personal reactions to it. Um, but I did like that, you know, in the way that it kept coming up, I liked that it was consistently a conversation between the two of them. Yep. Um, yeah. and I thought that was a really positive thing. Like the fact that he's very, you know, 
adamant about not turning her and she kind of like at some point is ready, but he's not ready yep. to kind of like take that step. And the fact they kind of like checked in with each other and kept talking about it, I thought was really positive. And it was like a good kind of like setup for like, you know, learning about doing it. And you, I can't say, you know, there wasn't a lot of dialogue in the film, so I can't, I can't really say exactly how quote unquote good their communication was about it, or, but they kept coming back to it and kept working through it with each other. And I thought that was really positive. And I do think one of the scenes that was in the movie too was when she started feeling embarrassed that she wanted to have sex so much more than he did. Mm. And I think they talked it through and kind of said it has nothing to do with his sexual desire or her sexual desire. It has to do with something bigger, morality and sin and the soul and things like that. So I yeah. do think the film got some of those conversations and showed that they did try to talk things through when they could. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought that was really good. Um, also, I don't really know if I have a talking point for this, but I think that turning into werewolf is a great metaphor for puberty. Um, yes. That's, that's fantastic. Like the hairiness and the aggressiveness, like yes. that's such a funny. And hormones changing the way in which you think about the world and you react. Yeah. I was thinking how many people, I don't know how far we are into this, but there are a lot of Jacob fans that are very annoyed that we have not been discussing Jacob up until oh. now in the podcast. Let's do it. Let's get into the love triangle. Let's get into the um, Edward and Jacob discussion. Yep. Um, maybe where you stand personally or uh, um, just kind of impressions you have about kind of the love triangle that kind of develops. And I think it's important to kind of go back in time because now if you've seen, like all three of us have, the end of the story, we know there's a real reason why she doesn't end up with Jacob. Oh, spoiler alert, that uh, she ends up with Edward <laughs> instead of Jacob. But early on, you didn't know that. And as these books were coming out and as these book, uh, the films were coming out, you were team Jacob, you were team Edward. You, you couldn't really be neutral on this. People really had a strong feeling one way or the other mm. about it. And I think from not a parent, but certainly an older adult looking out for Bella, you would look at Jacob as being a much more realistic choice. Yes, he turns into a vampire, or uh, sorry, turns into a werewolf on occasion, but he seems to come from a more stable family. He seems to be less likely to put her into danger. One, going back to difference between books and films, and this is one of the things I'm not sure I'd remembered until I was redoing this. Jacob doesn't show up in the books until quite a ways in. And yeah, he's there from that. the beginning of the film. So there's no doubt they were trying to build up that triangle. The, yeah. To promote the movie, they wanted this relationship triangle to be forefront. And you knew from the very beginning that he had a crush on her when she's helping to deliver her pickup or her truck that she's going to drive around. You know that he has interest in her from that moment on, even before Edward shows any interest. Yeah. In her. I thought that was interesting because I, I had never interpreted that way in my head, just from what I knew about the series before I watched it. But it's yeah. good to know that that wasn't the case in the books, too. So I can kind of like that initial assess in my head might have been correct. They um, knew so each you, other as kids. They did play together as kids because their, gotcha. their fathers were best friends. Mm -hmm. But no, they just ran into each other in that beach when they all go to the beach that one day. They yeah, happened yeah. to run across. There was nothing intentional about it. And then gotcha. the relationship builds and develops over time. Interesting. So, so I yeah, I, I realized I didn't answer your question on which side I'm on. Uh, it's <laughs> hard now. It's impossible to be neutral going yes. through it. So now you have, you've called yourself out, basically. I know. I think at the time, I probably was Jacob. But 
I mentioned before, this is a genre. I always like shapeshifters more than vampires. I'm always drawn to um, skinwalkers even more than uh, werewolves. But still, that's a genre that I like, and that's the type of character I like. So that may have been part of it for me. I do know at the time there was a gender assumption that men like boys like werewolves, women like girls like vampires. So there was a tendency for all the males to want her to be with Jacob because werewolves are much cooler than glittery vampires. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that that um, uh, gender uh, uh, divide happened. I was so keep in mind that the first movie I watched was the second movie. The second, yeah. And I had no context other than what I saw. So I actually kind of like Jacob, yeah. and. Um, I had only heard things about Edward watching her sleep. And so like I was team Jacob from the beginning, just because like, that was what I had to compare it to. I was yeah. like, this guy seems cool. And the other guy, you said he watches her sleep. I don't mean, I don't know if I need to see that. Um, but yeah, so I think that was where I was. Denzel, do you have a yeah, place def- to weigh in? Definitely. And uh, it goes back to like, you know, being completely open and vulnerable in this, like it was 100% the whole gender dynamics that like you just openly discussed. It was like, yeah, like, you know, cool, badass werewolf, like, you know, (laughs) high school adolescent, like, yeah, werewolf all the way. And so like, (laughs) there wasn't really as much, at least for me, like as much of like, is this healthy? Is this not healthy? Like dynamic that was at play and like me determined it was just more along the lines of, yeah, the werewolf's cool and the vampire's glittery and like that's <laughs> not cool. <laughs> so yeah, that's I was Team Jacob for sure. Gotcha. Fair enough. And yeah, just, so and I just, like and, I... and just liking the actor more. Um, you know, growing Same up and that. seeing him as, you know, younger characters in other kids' movies that I watched. Yeah. So Yeah, that's Yeah, I forget that he was known before this really came out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and do you guys we're... have to do a Twitter poll? afterwards to find out what all they should yeah. yeah we should probably do one before we release the episode just to yeah that's not a bad back. idea <laughs> yeah because people have very strong opinions on this so give us the um since we brought up team jacob and we haven't talked yeah. about him enough yet what's the what, what would be the argument for jacob if we're going from a kind of a, for bella's sake not necessarily just that vampires are cooler um well, well, to come back to your idea of death, she doesn't have to die to be with Jacob. She doesn't have to be That's killed and become a vampire. It's yeah. positive. <laughs> I think the idea that, I forget when exactly Jacob is talking about this, but that she can continue to live her life. She can still mm-hmm. be connected to her dad and her mom. She can still have all of her friends. They have to hide the secret, but by that point, we've seen the other werewolves and the other werewolves are in relationships and they can kind of hide their supernatural nature from the world around them and continue to exist. So I think the idea is she gives up more by going with Edward Mm -hmm. than she does with Jacob. So it almost seems like Jacob's the more kind of practical choice. Yeah. Yeah, And I almost and I, wonder if it wasn't set up that way. They wanted you to root for Jacob. So then when they have a really good reason why it can't be Jacob, then we will fall back into it. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much we want to get into that, but the, the werewolves That's have right. this automatic connection, this imprinting you do on one perfect soulmate, because that soulmate idea is stronger with the werewolves even than it is with the vampires. Uh -huh. And that we find out later that it's not so much that Jacob was in love with Bella, it's that he was going to be a perfect imprinted soulmate with Bella's daughter. And that's where some of that connection was going to be. And gotcha. for me, I think either find it really creepy that this adult male is in love with this newborn, or you see it as the perfect resolution to this romantic triangle that we've had before. Cause mm -hmm. now Bella and Edward can be very supportive of Jacob because Jacob loves their daughter just as much as they do. Yeah. And not in a sexual way when she's a daughter. Uh, they be, are very clear that he's the companion. He's the friend. He's whatever right. she needs in the rest of her life. That's what imprinting as a werewolf means. Right. And I think when I first read it, I think because I, I didn't um, watch the last two movies from the, from the last book, um, but I did some reading. So I was like familiar with what happened. And I had to like turn to my wife and be like, is this imprinting thing weird? I can't, I can't tell from the summary. Is it weird? Um, and, and she kind of gave me a little it? bit of, huh? And she'd seen it. She, yeah, she, she read the books. The I think she read the books. I think she's one of those who's kind of like, she hates Kristen Stewart. So I don't know if yep. she doesn't like the movies or just hates Kristen Stewart. Um, but um, that's kind of where that came from. So she had read the books, and she kind of had told me that it wasn't, you know, as creepy as it might come off when you first read it. That was a very common response. We actually had open-ended questions with our, our mm -hmm. research. Um, who did you like or not like? And there was clear majority. I can't remember if it's more than 60 or 70%, but clear majority hated movie Bella and loved book Bella, if you'd seen yeah. Bella. Beavis and Butthead even did an episode about making fun about how bad she was in the show. Oh, yeah. man. I don't mind her. I know people have a really negative view of her sometimes, but... Um, I've seen her in other things. I thought she did a great yeah. job on Saturday Night Live other than dropping an F-bomb, which I thought was hilarious, but yeah. probably not what she wanted to do. Um, but yeah, I don't have any negative feelings to her, but there are some very strong, very strong feelings about her. And I think it always comes from those that read the book and saw the inner monologue and had the sympathetic reaction to the character. Yeah. And I just don't think it was in the script. I mean, I'm yeah. Kristen Stewart apologist, I guess, but... It just didn't seem like there was enough for her to make the connection with the audience. You were just supposed to like her because she was the star of the movie. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, I can kind of see that. And I just I just thought it was more about like fitting the mood of the movie. Yeah. The mood of the movie that's was it. meant to be very dark and kind of like almost mysterious. -y. And I think that's where Kristen was trying to play into it. And again, I don't know if that's true in the books or not, but like the, definitely the feel from the movie was kind of like a dark feel to it. So that does bring up one thing that I wanted to backtrack a little bit and come back to that idea of what she was giving up that Jacob kept telling her that she was giving up her life. And this is something in the movie that's not in the book at the end of the third movie. So he's proposed uh, or he's getting ready to propose, but they're getting into this conversation about why does she really want to become a vampire? Is it all only because of him and the book it is. I mean, in the book, the only reason is so that she can spend the rest of her life with this person. But I don't know if it's a feminist empowerment aspect that they wanted to add into the film. But the film has a little monologue about, I've always been different. I've never really fit in. This is a perfect fit for me to become a vampire because I've always felt out of step, out of time. I mean, all those cliches that lots and lots of teenagers feel. 
-hmm. They added that in. I don't believe. Now, somebody could be correcting me. I've angry comments and posts on this uh, podcast. (laughs) But I don't think it's in the book. I do think they added it in the film to make her more of an independent character. Yeah. I mean, they do do a little bit. I mean, he saves her in the first film from the van. She saves him from committing suicide in the second one. I mean, they take turns saving each other's life over and over again, Mm -hmm. theoretically. Yeah. 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 And I, I kind of want to go back to that giving up stuff too, because I almost made me think like, is there an intentional message being sent about like, and let me, let me clarify something real quick. Did she have the same kind of emotional feelings towards Jacob at all? I never got that sense. I believe the final conclusion is, I know it's pretty clear in the movie. She, mm. she kisses him before the big final battle. I mean, uh, she makes it very clear. I do love both of you. Mm. I love you both completely. But I guess not big final battle. The, the big final battle is with the council of super villain uh, vampires. Right. This is when the, um, the girlfriend, the redhead, has come back and had led an army against them. Mm. And she makes it very, very clear that she does love Jacob, too. She just loves Edward more. And that she's choosing between two people she thinks are perfect for her, but there's some kind of inner soul connection that makes her go with Ed, Edward instead of Jacob. And that's what Jacob has to live with, is that if Edward had died, Edward wasn't around, he and Bella would be together forever and ever. Interesting. Okay. Because I, I wondered if it was like a intentional message of like the practical choice, but yep. not really feeling that that intensely about Versus like this intense, crazy feeling and take the crazy feelings. Which, and come back to your idea of danger and death. I mean, yeah. You go with a dangerous choice and you go with a bad boy. You go with the one. So the werewolf isn't the bad boy in this scenario, but. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's kind of funny. Yeah. So I wondered about that, too. And and if, for people who have listened to this before, they'll know that that's kind of a pet peeve of mine is like going with the intense feelings over you know, yeah. making smart relationship choices, but um, it certainly seemed like it was an intentional message in this movie. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So, that it was set up from the beginning of the first book. Just, I mean, now that we know how it ends, she yeah. set it up that there was going to be a realistic, rational choice that she was going to not make. She was going to go with the impulsive emotional choice instead. Yeah. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> that's what you get for having three team jacobers on a podcast i guess exactly exactly <laughs> we know that bella makes this more impulsive emotional choice and you know we can have our feelings about it but um what do you think the relationship looks like in the future so like after kind of like the story ends and they have the rest of their lives what what kind of well the rest of forever, actually, not the rest of their lives. Right. Um, what do you think the relationship looks like? What predictions would you have about them? Some of this is spoiled a little bit in the movie because I know they do a fast forward where um, the daughter has grown up and all four of them are still friends holding hands on the beach or something. So I know we're supposed to think that Belle and Edward, everything worked out really, really fine. Mm. Um, and that Renesmee, if I got that right, the daughter grows up and moves from a friendship to a romantic relationship with Jacob. I think the books are actually designed to set up much more of a sequel, a conflict. I mean, um, 
getting into micro details that lots of people probably don't remember from these books if they haven't watched the films <laughs> again recently, but there is the council of vampires that's been controlling for two one or two thousand years mm -hmm. and they kind of try to attack the edwards colon family and try and they bring together a lot of other vampires around the world to defend themselves and it's left with the idea that they didn't win there was just kind of a draw everybody decided to walk away from the battle that day but yeah. the bad council of vampires is going to come back is going to still want to take the there's two or three vampires in the colon family that have unusual powers and that this would be an ongoing battle until one side or the other was destroyed and now i think that sets itself up for an interesting mm -hmm. sequel someday in the future when everybody needs more money or something like that but right yeah what were you thinking you know i honestly it's hard to say because the supernatural element plays yeah. such an interesting role in this, right? Um, so considering that they're, this is such a silly argument to make, considering that they're infinitely going to be together, like that really increases their chances of having a time where they kind of split off from each other, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I guess if we're talking, um, I, I, I don't know if I'm using this statistically or theoretically, if there is infinite time left, it's the chances or the likelihood that they would split off or have a really bad situation is almost hundred percent, right? Because forever is going to happen. Yeah. Um, so I wonder what happens when that happens, I guess is where yeah. I wonder. So like there's going to be something that a conflict between the two of them that's going to come up, that's going to be really big. And it's not, it, and at some point, obviously, you know, the council is going to come back. There's going to be lots of other crazy things going on. But at some point, when the craziness dies down and it's just the two of them, you know, how do they interact with each other? That's what I want to know. Um, and I don't know if I have enough information. Decades. Say again. For decades after decades, they're going to interact with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes, and I don't know enough, I think, about their relationship to know how they'd handle those situations. Yeah. And, and to go back to your idea, when it's boring, when yeah. there's nobody out to kill them, when there's no threat to their life, and they just do spend days together seeing the world. I think we're supposed to assume that vampires never get bored that because they've got supervision, super hearing, super speed, I mean, that they can always find a way to enjoy any moment that they're in. There's something about the one of the other siblings, uh, so I guess Rosalie and Emmett, that when they first got together, nobody saw them for over a decade because they were just having sex for the first decade or so that they got married. So this idea that you can go away from your family for a long period of time and then come back as if, just a blink of an eye if you're an immortal vampire. I think it's kind right. of what we're supposed to look at. Now, whether that means Edward and Bella could get tired of each other enough to spend a few years or a decade apart mm. seems very realistic. I agree with you completely. I, I can't imagine decades, centuries, which is what they're talking about together. But I know that's what we're supposed to assume. We're supposed to assume that they yeah. continually fall in love with each other every day over and over again and rediscover new things about each other every minute. 
Yeah, yeah. I think, I think and, I'd like to add to those points, um, Eric, you're bringing this up. And, you know, as both of you were talking, just thinking about, um, you know, with forever being a long time. And when we and we think about uh, particularly like within media, uh, you know, movies, television, books, whatever, you, you know, you had the cliche and they lived happily ever after. And like, so like um, yeah. you know, that's like you were saying, like you kind of expect that. Um, but like, you know, in real life relationships where we don't even live for forever. I think like even there's that common myth and like a true happy relationship means that there's like never arguments. There's never like times yeah. of conflict, like X, Y, and Z. And so like in, in whatever case to increase their odds of, you know, staying together, whether it be through like boredom or conflict or whatever, they have to be more proactive and like setting up the stage for not, so like not if this happens we will do this, but when this happens we'll know like these are the things that we can do and like negotiate that and like how those situations would be handled, and so like just even outside of like TV and media and within our um, you know our I think infinite I think that's the word I'm looking for our our time span as humans where we don't live forever, um, like it's it's important to have those things in place as well because. It's not always a if this happens, it's more likely to be when this happens. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. You don't have to live forever to experience conflict in relationships, for sure. For sure. And it's important and I, to, to, to negotiate that and set that up from the beginning. Yeah. And I don't know what kind of research literature is on this, but I know there's the assumption that we don't teach people that with our films, with our books. We mm -hmm. teach them... You're going to work together to overcome dramatic obstacles. You're going to fall in love. You're going to get married. And everything's perfect from that moment on. Yeah. And occasionally you have series that come back. I'm thinking maybe Bridget Jones came back and did that. Or mm -hmm. there's some movies or series that do try to come back and talk about the small little things that annoy you about your partner in year three, in year yeah. 25. And how do you deal with that? And how does the relationship get stronger? And Generally, those movies don't do very well, and yeah. it's not as interesting. So we, the concern I know is that we're training people with what you're talking about in real life to never be prepared for those hard moments, right? Where, where you have to argue through it, and there's all the myths about whether the divorce rate had ever really got over fifty percent. It didn't, but all those kinds of ideas <laughs> that maybe people are more likely to give up on relationships too early because they haven't been trained by their parents, by media, how to fight through it to get to the other side. For sure. Yeah. And I think about too, how so many romantic comedies specifically and romance movies in general, but I'm more familiar with romantic comedies, um, get you to, I love you. Yeah. And then the movie's over. Yeah, And it, it gets you to that point of like, let's start a relationship, basically. And it doesn't get past that point. And that's something that I thought about as you were talking about that. It's like, we have these models and not always very healthy models of how you get to that point. Um, but not a lot of models even after that point. And, you know, and when you do the research on the long term 50th anniversary couples, they talk about the fact commitment and intimacy stayed all the way through, but maybe some of the sexual gratification i mean the some of that wasn't strong for a while but the rest mm -hmm. of the relationship really was and it came back once the kids yeah. move out of the house or whatever that is then mm -hmm. they return to some of those all three different parts of a perfect relationship coming together yeah but that's I not think, portrayed yeah 
Yeah, I think you can really. I think there are um, there are some stories too. I'm trying to think of the one with Tommy Lee Jones and uh, I think it's Tommy Lee Jones and Steve Carell plays the couples therapist. Oh, okay. Do you, I can't remember the name of it, but I do. I think it's Meryl Streep too, right? Man, if I'm wrong, I'm gonna look like an idiot. Um, but that was a, I think, a good example of like a. Isn't this was kind of like seen as like it was an elderly couple. So the scene is like, oh, they're very old, so they're trying to get back. But that happens in midlife. It happens early in life. And like that kind of like losing and getting it back is really important part of relationships and kind of like how do you kind of negotiate, you know, when things start to fizzle in one way, maybe friendship or maybe yep. in sexual relationship, maybe and just kind of like that intense feelings or whatever. Like how do you kind of like get those things back or um, move in a way that your relationship is still enjoyable and fun or positive or healthy and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that we're having a hard time remembering the name of it and whether yes. those were actually the people probably says maybe it won Oscars, but it didn't really capture the American consciousness. Yeah. yeah. And what's funny too, is you're talking about the couples that have been together for so long and what they found helpful. It made me think of when Harry met Sally, right? How they kind of bookended the movie. And I think even in the middle of the movie, they had these couples that have been together for a long time. Yep talking about things and then neither Harry nor Sally do a lot of those things in the movie. Yeah. That's another yeah. podcast, <laughs> but there's a lot of interesting ones wrapped up in that movie. For yeah, sure. for sure. But it was just and very whether you could do that today, whether that reflects today's ideas about men and women in relationships or not. Yeah. I would be very interested in that too. That's really interesting. But yeah. That sounds like, uh, sounds like a feature podcast. <laughs> I've been, I brought that up to a few people and no one's, uh, no one's bit, so we'll see, but it definitely is, um, an interesting, uh, juxtaposition like then and now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. So any last thoughts about Bella, Edward, Jacob, anyone else in the twilight franchise? No, nothing that's really striking me. No, I think we've covered this one in depth and quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, we did good. I did like just in this, they weren't in it a lot. And I think that explains why they're not, I really like Carlisle and his wife. I forgot his wife's yes. name. I thought they had a really great relationship. When you kind of talked about how they kind of like set up this kind of secure attachment for, for Edward. Um, but I really liked watching them and I just, he just seemed like a, such a cool character. I really liked him. In the sequence of becoming vampires, um, the father, Colin, is turned into a vampire almost by mistake from some bad guy that leaves him alone. Mm -hmm. And then Edward's dying, and he turns him, and they become best friends, almost father and son. And then the female, Esme, is there that he turns her, and then they just happen to be perfect soulmates forever and ever. The second vampire he ever makes in his life happens to be, as luck would have it the perfect soulmate <laughs> for him for the rest of his life i mean it's not even like edward and bella where they he'd been living 100 years and found a human that ended up being a perfect soulmate it just happened to be somebody she was attempting suicide and he saved her life and they are now stuck together and happy but they seem to be happy that seems yeah. to be the idea and i think it brings up that they're even with those two characters they were perfect soulmates that happened to find each other in the right way yeah, there's definitely a magical element of this, yep. even beyond the supernatural part. Like that's magical soulmate part. And that's, yeah, yeah. I think, really fun in movies yes, and TV shows to play with. Um, it could get harmful if you take it to an extreme in your real life. Um, just like if you 
pretended to be Superman and jumped off a, a building like that wouldn't be a good idea. But like, I do think it's fun to kind of like play with these ideas of like the soulmate and things like and this kind of like magical feeling or magical connection. I think those are kind of fun. Yeah. And when especially I think teenagers falling in love, it does feel magical. I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, we can talk about limbic systems and prefrontal cortex and all the things that are going on, but yeah. they feel love more intensely at that age than you're ever going to feel at any other time. Yeah. And, and I think that's really important to bring up too, is kind of the, you know, everyone who does a story like this is always compared to Romeo and Juliet, but it is kind yeah. of like that idea of like the really intense teenagers and, um, I forgot my thought. Um, just kind of like, it is kind of symbolic of that time though. Like, um, you know, it's been a little bit since I've been a teenager before, but you do feel things really intensely as a teenager and whether that's, um, dread, whether it's love, whether it's whatever, um, you feel it really intensely. And I, it, there's some research and I wish I could remember what it was. Um, but I was, ta I was talking to someone at a conference and they were doing like, um, a look at attachment over time mm -hmm. and, you know, you, you do have more of that insecure attachment um, during those teen years. You do feel those like very high highs and low lows or more avoidance um, for some people. Like you do feel that really intensely for that time. And uh, some of those to, like, trust secure relationships, time. some of those trust secure relationships you've been led to believe with your parents don't always happen. Your friends don't live up to that level and your romantic partners don't always. And you kind of have to learn who to trust and who not to trust. Exactly. Yeah. You kind of have to like take that framework of attachment and kind of learn to generalize and discriminate appropriately. Right. Like how do you kind of like use that? And most people don't do it consciously, but you're still trying to like figure that out. Who do I trust versus like, you know, and if we look at um, Bella, for example, if Bella was more non-trusting and a little bit kind of like, um, not maybe more avoidant with friends and things like that her allowing herself to open up so much to um edward when it was a, a safe and trustworthy person to do it with yep this is a tangent of my own but uh, and i've never seen a follow-up on this research but when they looked at condom use and safe sex behavior mm -hmm. among college students they found that the one group that was safest were avoidant because they don't trust people now they're having sex, they're in relationships, but they're yeah. going to take full responsibility for their own protection. Mm -hmm. um, anxiously attached or more likely to do whatever the other person wants to make sure that they don't leave. And right. secure people fall in love within an hour and a half. And the person I fall in love with could never have a sexually transmitted disease. So I don't have to worry about it because they're somebody I can trust. So you actually have to do more safe sex education with the anxious and the securely attached than you do with the avoidantly attached. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, uh, I guess positive of something that we might yeah. think of negatively. I think that's important to think about too. Like a lot of these things that we might talk of negatively, even the intensity that Bell and, and um, Edward have, and we have talked about how that can kind of be problematic, but there's positives to that too, right? Not only does it feel really good, but it allows them to, they care for each other so much yep. and that they do things for each other. And, um, they have each other's best interests in, in mind most of the time. Absolutely. They're both willing to sacrifice their own happiness over and over again for the other person. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Romeo and Juliet too, because I keep forgetting. I mean, it's a book assignment. They're reading it for school. Uh, it shows up more than once. And yeah. 
it can't be coincidental that that kind of idea that these two teenage lovers were willing to die for each other, and now this modern relationship, they're willing to die for each other. I mean, that is a theme that's as old as time, but it keeps getting replicated again and again in just different versions. Yeah, absolutely. It's I think that's cool how we can kind of like see a similar story, but it can bring a new twist on or whatever the case is. Yep. And I know there's a number of discussions, I mean, dissertations, thesis, I mean, analyzing the different kinds of connections to historical literature in one way or the other that are replicated over and over again in Twilight. There's been a lot of degrees earned based on Twilight. I bet, yeah, for sure. I, I know, um, yeah, good writers and good um, people who come up with stories do that a lot and can like really yep. fit in these archetypes, but do it in a way that's original and things like that. And I think that's really cool. Yep. yep. All right. So um, to wrap up, um, this was Dr. Garman's idea and I really liked it. So we're going to bring up our favorite supernatural couples, right? Our su supernatural romance in film or TV. So Dr. Garman, I'll let you go first. So thinking about the history of, TV and movies and in terms of what you like, what's your favorite supernatural couple or romance? I realized after I suggested this idea that I could think of a lot of possibles because uh -huh. I just have watched and read so many, but finding, thinking of what I really think decide is a favorite is more difficult. I mean, I, yeah. When I think of, I prefer TV series or books that have multiple. So you can see the arc. And when you do that, the two main characters are not going to be happy all the way through. Um, I'm always going to come back to Buffy the Vampire Slayer and her early relationship with Angel and then later into Spike, which has some questionable aspects that people were uncomfortable with. So that's one of those that I loved the first season or two, and it had so many great aspects of it. Mm -hmm. But over time, probably because of real world issues with the actors and different kinds of career paths, it kind of fell apart. But when I keep coming back to one that I really, really liked, it goes back to Buffy and the side characters. In this case, Willow was there oh, from yeah. the beginning, and she was kind of nerdy, geeky, but also really fun and loving. And then they had Oz come along. Seth Green is a character I've known and liked for a lot of things. Yeah. And he just wrote him as the coolest high schooler that has ever lived. <laughs> He's in a rock band. He's quiet, but funny. He's just always supportive of anything that his soulmate, his romantic partner wants to do. And then, yeah, later he becomes a, a werewolf, too, which throws in the whole, we've decided we like werewolves better than vampires anyway. Right. Now the show goes on because Seth goes, the actor goes on and does other things. And then we have some conflict with her developing more of a fluid gender sexuality later on. But for those that season or two where the two of them were a couple, I really, really liked it. And I really liked that supportive nature of the two of them. That wasn't where you thought I was going, was it? I honestly thought you were going to do Buffy. Because yeah. that's when I think of supernatural romance, that's the first thing that comes to my head. So it had nothing to do with you, obviously. It was just like, yeah. that's the thing I always go to in my head. Denzel, how about you? You have yeah, one? Yeah, you got me on this one. Uh, none of the above. I have no idea. Uh, yeah, I got See, nothing. I was, I was struggling too to come up with one, and I feel like this is such a cop out. But I'm really into comics and uh, superheroes, so I mean that's where I'm going to go with my head, where, where I'm thinking. So I'm always, I'm trying to think of like one of the ones recently that I've seen. So I really didn't like 
for all that, all the negative things that have been said about the DC extended universe. And I understand some of them, but I still like most of the movies cause I'm, I'm a diehard. I'll, I like everything. I did not like the Superman Lois Lane dynamic at all. I was not into it in the movies. I I've, I've seen versions where I've really liked their dynamic and I just wasn't having it in the movies. But, um, in terms of the TV shows that, uh, CW does, I really like on uh, the flash, uh, Barry and Iris, my wife hates Iris. I'm not sure why. <laughs> um, but I, I really like, I think they're cute and, I think I like the side character relationships more because because they're side characters, they get to have more of a happy relationship. They have right, to put the right. main characters into drama. So um, uh, Caitlin and Ronnie from Flash and then a couple others right. in Arrow who I'm not remembering off the top of my head. But um, I also really liked it on Arrow when Oliver and Moral were together. Yeah, that was a really good relationship. I they I really wish they had brought that back. I kept waiting for it and waiting for it, and then Felicity became a bigger thing. And I don't love Felicity as much, but you know, they're, it's fine. Uh, but yeah, so I think mine are all in the superhero realm. I know that I've always had the same thing with the Superman and Lois. I mean, even back to the first movie, but also the uh, the Adventures of Superman or Adventures of Lois and Clark TV series. Oh yeah, and that one. It just never really clicked for me either in that one as much. Yeah. When you started talking about Arrow, what I immediately remember is I did a lot of the Smallville. I really, I'm originally yes. from Kansas, so anything with Smallville was going to work for me too. And when they had that character of uh, Overwatch, I think it's Overwatch. Oh. Um, it was Chloe in the... Uh, Smallville show, but then it's Felicity gotcha. when we get into the Arrow show. Yeah. I mean, that idea of that character keeps being reinterpreted in one comic mm -hmm. after another and one TV show after another. But Arrow was the first time they made her a romantic interest. That yeah. They decided that this actress and this actor just really clicked. I'm not sure they ever intended them to be a romantic couple, but... Felicity wasn't even supposed to be on the show for very long. So yeah. She was supposed to be like a couple episodes and that'd be it, but people liked her a lot, so... I liked her better with Ray Palmer, the, uh, yeah. the Adam, who was originally supposed to be, and this is, this is me getting into my DC nerddom, uh, he was originally supposed to be Blue Beetle, Ted Cord, which oh, okay. if you are familiar with the comics and watch the show, that'll make way more sense. Because right. uh, he fit that, that person way more than the Adam in the comics. But I've, uh, I really liked them together. And um, I also really, so I, I know I probably shouldn't like both, but I also like when Oliver was with Sarah too, mm. sister or yeah. Laura's sister. But yeah, so um, I'm really into those. And then in the cartoons, I really like the Green Arrow and in the Justice League cartoons, the Green Arrow, yeah. Black Canary, and yes, um, I thought Superman and Lois was fun in the cartoons. And so yeah, I think a lot of the uh, comic different representations of the comic books is where I'd say my favorites are from. That makes a lot of sense. And they can go in so many different directions with alternate parallel universes and yeah, yeah. infinite universes really and all fun. that. Because when you talk about those characters from Arrow, I immediately think of um, Legends of Tomorrow because that's my favorite one out of all of yeah. that group. And so the characters you liked, uh, they moved over to Legends and mm -hmm. are the core of that show from the very beginning. Yeah, I really liked Legends. I've watched a little bit of Legends too. And I'm trying to remember, I know there's... I guess Sarah has a really serious relationship now with the head of the uh, crime force, the the time portal people. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, I've not yeah. kept up. I've, oh. I've got way behind, unfortunately, just because of new jobs and dissertation first and then new job. And I just have not caught up. Although, have you watched Black Lightning? I did. I watched the first season. Oh, I didn't follow it in the second season. Neither have I. But I really for, liked it. for me, it, it was it had too much of the real world. And that's a show that taught me, oh, I really like Supernatural. I don't want any oh, okay, realistic gotcha. neighborhood <laughs> gang violence. Yeah. I want superheroes. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked the realist because I really liked Arrow when it was more realistic. And then I really liked Black Lightning because it was so like in the real world and stuff. That's usually what we do. Is... Denzel was not joining in with his favorite superhero. Yeah, yeah Denzel. So... So, uh, so, so let's take like the superhero and like supernatural out. Let's see how well Eric knows me. Oh, so, gosh. so if we take if we take all the like those elements out and we just stick to to favorite couple or potential couple, who do you think I would say? You know the question? answer. You know the answer. We can even circle back to things that we've talked about before. <sighs> even bigger hint. We talked about them in podcasts. Oh my god! It's something we've talked about before. Definitely, you you know the answer. <laughs> Favorite TV or movie couple, and or cartoon? Hint, hint. I knew it was a cartoon. I know you. <laughs> it's not in Big Mouth, is it? No. Mm. Earlier, earlier childhood, yeah. You you know this. Because wasn't your number one um, for the Nickelodeon one, Reggie Rocket? And I, tra- I don't remember the guy's name. So I think that was my number one for positive relationship, but not favorite. Oh, Doug and Patty. Oh, my God. I can't that for a guy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you two know each other. Thanks to you for listening today. If you want to become a part of Relevation Nation and get daily information about romantic relationships, or just want to learn more about Relevate, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash myrelevate, follow us on Twitter at myrelevate, or on Instagram at instagram.com slash myrelevate. Special thanks to our producer and the composer of our opening music, Denzel Jones. See you next time.